This evening I'd like to speak about the heart of wisdom and compassion. Sometimes we can think perhaps about how we understand or might even try to describe what we're engaged in doing here. And there are various ways we could respond to that. But one of the perhaps most useful would be to understand the practice that we're engaged in. And in fact, any spiritual life is essentially concerned with the cultivation of wisdom and of compassion. It is said that wisdom and compassion are the two wings of the bird of the spiritual life, without either one of which it could not fly. And we sometimes speak of these two qualities, these two capacities, as being somewhat different, somewhat even distant and separate from each other. And yet ultimately and fundamentally they are united and very much at the core of our practice and very much at the core of each other. Our interest in this practice, in the development of wisdom, in the discovery of understanding, is born of a wish to free ourselves from suffering, from a sense of separation or unsatisfactoriness in life. And that wish to free ourselves from suffering is born from compassion, is actually born from a deep concern for our own welfare and hopefully for the welfare of others too. The cultivation of wisdom, of seeking to understand the way things are. When we understand the way things are, this actually rather naturally and directly gives rise to a concern and a compassion for others and an expression of that concern through acting for the welfare and the well-being of all that lives. Our meditation and our practice is not just for ourselves, but for all of life. And it could not be other, it could not be different than this, even though at times we might think that it would be or could be for us and us alone. So, in our meditation practice we might wonder what is it that we're trying to see? What are we seeking to understand? Through paying attention, we begin to see more deeply. We begin to see more clearly. And we start to see through the surface appearance and the first impression of things. So often we react or respond to our first impression without really steadying our attention to see clearly what is actually going on. In early February last year, in the, the cold of winter, I was meditating one morning and having finished my sitting, opened my eyes and there in front of me some, I guess six or seven feet away on the windowsill was this small snail. And I saw the snail just with the first image arose as I opened my eyes as this creature sitting on the windowsill and I just gazed at it for a few moments and I could see the beautiful delicate spiral of its shell and the, that soft moist body and the little head with the little sort of sort of beady stalks with eyes on top and I was just fascinated to watch the little stalks waving around and the body was sort of almost just moving there and I thought gosh that snail must have come in through the window and I'd left the window open although it was very cold because it had sort of swollen with water and was sticking, so I had to trim it with a plane and paint it. Once I painted it, I couldn't close it, so I left it open. <laughs> All rather complicated. But anyway, I thought, oh, the snail's come inside. It's probably come inside because it's so cold. It would probably die out there because you don't usually see the snails in the dead of winter, the cold of winter. So it's come inside to escape the cold, but there's no food for it inside. There's nothing to eat in this house. What's going to happen? If I put it back outside, it will die? If I leave it in here, it will starve? 
what can I do, I thought. And then I had this idea. Where we were living at time was on the Sharpham Estate and uh, near the uh, Sharpham College, which had a, a lovely garden and a beautiful greenhouse. And I thought, oh, it's a greenhouse. That's nice and warm, full of food for the snail. I'm sure the, the, the people at the college won't mind too much. It's not going to eat that much of their crops. So I thought, great, I can take the snail, put it in the greenhouse. It'll be warm, it'll have food. And I felt so happy to have solved this problem that had arrived on my windowsill early in the morning. And so I got up and reached towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. <laughs> from when I'd trimmed the window. And I'd seen its little eyes on stalks and watched it and felt for its very existence and worried over it and solved it. And it was a wood shaving. It's a true story. (laughs) The suffering in our life, the problem in our life, is essentially born of misperception. Essentially born of not seeing things as they are. The failure to understand the way things are is what gives rise to a way of acting and being and living in the world which is not in harmony with the world. Because we failed to understand it. And living in a way that is not in harmony in the world generates suffering. That's the signal that suffering is giving us. It's saying we're out of harmony with the way things actually are. The cultivation of wisdom is to recognize the truth of our experience and in understanding the truth, to reverse the misperception, to be able to actually live in harmony with the way things are. And this is the end of suffering. So where is it and how is it that we don't perceive accurately and truthfully the way things are? We've already spoken on a number of these themes. How we look at things as though they are permanent. How we tend to act and relate as though our experience will or could continue the way it is. And how much grasping there arises at times in the seeking to continue an experience, to make it stay, failing to recognize that having come, it will leave. And how much time we spend pushing away, fighting and struggling with the difficult experience, having failed to recognize that having come, it will leave. When we see the truth of change, when we understand it, we see that there's no point, it doesn't make any sense to grasp hold of experience or to push it away, but simply to recognize that this life is in a process of change, transforms our way of living in it. To see how when we seek some form of lasting or ultimate satisfaction from those very experiences which come and go, which arise and pass, when we give them the capacity of determining our happiness or our unhappiness, we see how we experience a lack of satisfaction, an absence of peace and a great depth of suffering when we struggle with the way things are. To see that experience in its very changing nature is not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. So long as we fail to see this and seek for lasting satisfaction in our experience, whether it be a meditation experience or a more worldly experience, it's the same. Even the most blissful, peaceful, beautiful sitting will only be for a little while and then it will end. Just as anything in this world that we might grasp onto will end. To understand that means to cease to seek for ultimate satisfaction in the world of experience, in the realm of things that come and go. It asks us to let go to understand change, to understand the unsatisfactory nature of things, that they can't give us lasting satisfaction, is to learn to let go. When we grasp onto experience, we kind of get what could be called rope burn. When we try and fix 
something which by its very nature is in motion, is moving. It's like having a rope pulled through our hands. And if we grasp tightly onto it, we feel the very skin being torn from our palm. This is the experience of suffering. When we understand this, we see that suffering asks us to let go. And that letting go, far from being some denial of ourselves, or some punishment of ourselves, that letting go is in fact an act of compassion and kindness towards ourselves. Letting go, born of wisdom, is an expression of kindness and service for our well-being. And in seeing that everything changes, that nothing can be grasped hold of as permanent or ultimately and permanently satisfying, we also see that this applies to our very most immediate and intimate experience. Who and what we feel to be or claim or describe ourselves as, this too is in a process of change, is in a process of movement. And we've seen that process happening. We've seen that in fact we experience ourselves in so many different ways, in just one sitting or just one day, let alone the length of one retreat. Think how many people we have been over this time. How we've been such a happy person and such a sad person and an angry person and a bored person. All those different beings that we have become and yet seeing that none of them last. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch, the thought, the emotions that come and go. They all obey this law of coming and going. And is there anything amongst them all that we can point to and say, that is fixed, that is lasting? Point to it now if you can. Is there anything that actually stays the same? All our experience of the past, you know there's been so much of it already, can you find any of it right now? The memory perhaps, but that's a memory happening now not the past. The past is gone. And the future? What of our body that we will have in the future? Or our mind that we will have in the future? What of it can you find now? Where is it? It's not sort of sitting there somewhere around the corner, you know? It's not like we're going to, it's sort of waiting there for when we arrive. It just isn't there. In the same way the past, it's not like it goes somewhere. Like it's sitting there waiting to be checked in on again. It's just gone. Completely, absolutely gone. There's nothing behind us and nothing in front of us. And the very moment that we're in is constantly flickering and disappearing into the past, revealing a new present moment, which in the very moment of its revelation and its recognition slips into the past again, coming from what we might call the future, but in fact there's no such thing. It's just arising. And if we look at that, we see that they're not in our control, these experiences. They're coming and going according to the laws of nature, according to the way things are. And, and our idea that this is somehow me is born of a misunderstanding. It's born of a, of a failure to grasp that this is not something that is separate from the rest of the world. Have you noticed how the condition of your mind can be affected by the action of just one person? Someone who does something that you like, you feel pleased by, and ah, we feel so great, so happy. Oh, how lovely, the cooks have made my favourite meal. They must have known, I wonder how they found out. (laughs) Or, that person coughed, or they slammed the door loudly. They're doing it deliberately to wake me up, or annoy me, or irritate me. They must have it in for me. And we feel that it's so personal. But in fact, the person was probably oblivious to us. The cook had no idea what we like or what we don't like. Though perhaps they may have guessed. And yet, we can see how our inner experience is so profoundly affected by just one simple condition changing. You know, you think you're having a nice time right now? Well, probably if we brought in a really loud sort of tape recorder and played some really unpleasant sort of music that people listen to really loud in here for the whole sitting you know it wouldn't take long before you'd be sitting there going ah 
Ah, how unpleasant, how horrible. What a miserable experience it is to be here. And yet we think that that's just something that's happening to me. That it's me that that's going on. Not seeing how totally dependent it is upon what's going on around us. That the sense of being in an isolated, disconnected and separate existence is shown to be an illusion by the fact that everything around us touches us, impacts us, affects us. And all our sense of our history and our future and equally our existence in the present is born of failing to actually look carefully and see what's happening here, what's going on. This process of experience unfolding and somehow, somewhere, this idea that this belongs to me. But this is just a thought. Can you find anything other than that thought that says this is me? And what makes it so different from all the other thoughts, the ones you've been trying to get out of your head for the last week? And the small number that you perhaps have been enjoying? What makes it any different, that thought, that this is me? Is there any other evidence for it? And it's not to say, oh, this isn't me, this is somebody else, or it's not really here, so, you know, it doesn't really matter if it sort of falls out a window upstairs. <laughs> it's not to sort of negate, it's not to take the opposite position that says this is somehow, you know, an illusion, so I might as well sort of, sort of you know, do something unpleasant to it for fun. It's not like that at all. Which is sometimes what we think, oh, if there's no self, well, why should I look after it? Why give it food? Why care for another person? It's not that kind of shift. It's more understanding that the existence that we have is totally bound in with the existence of everything that is. And that if we seek our happiness, if we seek our well-being based on the idea of being separate, we suffer. Don't try and prove or disprove the idea of existence or yourself as a theory. That's no use to you. Whether you believe it or whether you disbelieve it, convincing yourself of just another view will make no difference to your life. But look and see what happens if you live that way. Look and see what happens if you live as though this one is the only thing that's important in this universe. And look and see what happens if you live understanding that this one is part of a matrix, of a tapestry of life that is so interwoven that you can't actually remove this one from it in any meaningful or ultimate way. What is it that we find behind the sense of wanting and craving? And we've had plenty of chance to see just how painful it is to be caught in the grip of wanting or caught in the grip of fear. And these primary movements towards and away from that give rise to so many other different forms and variations of grasping and aversion. Have we noticed what's going on in behind that? It's not just, a, it's not just craving. It's not just fear, it's I want, it's me that wants it, or it's me, it's I that I'm afraid. And that sense of personal ownership of the movement of desire, the movement of aversion or fear, that sense of ownership of it. Look and see, is that where the suffering is born? Don't take anyone's word for it, look and see for yourself. Is that where the suffering is born? If we feel that this is my fear, then we feel obliged to act it out. I've got to run away from the thing I'm afraid of. If we feel that this is my desire, then I have to get the thing that, that desire seeks. But in fact, there's no satisfaction in that process. There's no happiness, no peace to be found. And if we see that that's the case, we might have to question. Well, really, does it make sense to live a life centered around this notion, this idea, this investment in the concept of I, of me, as a separate, independent, self-existent thing? Wei Wu Wei, the Chinese mystic who lived this century, he once was asked, why do we suffer? And he said, why do you suffer? You suffer because 99.9% .9 of what you do is for yourself. 
and there isn't one. It's really quite straightforward. Look at your own life and see. When you live in a spirit of relationship and of acknowledging the significance and the importance of all of life, what difference would that or does that make to the way you experience your existence? When you live in a world that is bound by the need to protect this individual entity, to get for it all that it wants and to protect it from everything that it fears, what happens to your life when you do that? It becomes so contracted, so stuck, so bound in pain and suffering. And when we look at that, when we see, we might just try almost like an experiment. Just do it to see what happens. You don't have to believe any dogma or ideas. Just do it to see what happens. What if it was to be that I should say, okay, I'm going to act as though I don't own this. And there it might sound like a contradiction. Who is it that's acting as though they don't own it? Don't worry about that. Just, you know what we mean. You know what you mean when you say, I'm not going to act as though I own this. And just see that desire arises. Fear arises. Movements occur. And yet there's no need, if there's no need to satisfy them, if there's no need to act on them, they have no capacity to cause suffering in our life or in the world. Our very capacity to be present in the face of, in the midst of those movements, and to neither identify with them nor need to get rid of them. This is a capacity that expresses or that is expressed in the understanding that these are not our own. These are not who we are. The Buddha once said, anger comes from outside the mind. And equally one could say desire comes from outside the mind. Now, what we mean and understand by mind in this context might be a little different than what we usually understand, what we apply by the language of mind. But in this one can see that there's simply a place, a way, a quality in which we receive that movement. And yet, we didn't make it happen. We don't own it. And we're not responsible for fulfilling it. It's simply a movement. To see that we are not the owner of this experience, of this discrete or apparently separate bundle of body, mind and experience, when we don't identify ourselves in that limited way, rather than disappearing, rather than somehow annihilating ourselves with some clever Buddhist philosophy, what actually starts to show itself is that in not being identified with a part of this existence that we call me and mine, we quite naturally start to sense and to realize that there is no boundary between what we call I and what we call other. That there is a natural interconnectedness, an interpenetration, an interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh described it, in which we are part of a totality. We're not just connected to something. It's not like something, I'm over here, the rest of the world's over there, and there's a kind of a bridge that goes over somehow. We're trying to find the bridge. It's not like that. It's, it's much more close. It's much more deep. We're not just part of something, we are that very totality. We are the, the manifestation and the expression of the, of the mystical and profound unity of life. And that as we look into this world, what we start to see, what we can perhaps start to sense, is that wherever we look, we see ourselves in another form. We see the expressions of life around us. We experience the expressions of life within us. And we start to sense. We truly begin to realize that these are all expressions of the same life. This understanding begins to transform our priorities in the world rather than being completely bound up with our own personal agenda. We start to see that actually we are part of a larger picture, 
that we start to become more and more interested and concerned in addressing, in responding to. I'd like to read a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, I mentioned before. He's a Vietnamese Zen monk who also teaches mindfulness practice. And it's a rather famous poem, some of you I'm sure will know. Please call me by my true name. The title. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself upon the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true name, so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once. So I can see that my joy and my pain are but one. Please call me by my true name, so that I can wake up, and so that the door of my heart can be left open. The door of compassion. To look on this world and to see that in fact all around us is simply that which we are in another form. is to start to discover, to truly understand that our heart, when it opens to the truth of life, through seeing the truth of life, the door of our heart opens. And it opens in the expression of compassion. When we can actually allow ourselves to listen to the world, to listen to what goes on in our own lives and in the lives of so many beings, of so many creatures around us. To actually begin by simply listening to what we hear in the world, not distinguishing one from another or from ourselves, but just listening. In, the, in one of the Buddhist traditions, there is a incarnation, a female incarnation of the Buddha, who is known as Kuan Yin, or Avalokiteshvara. And the translation of this name, and the, the, this Bodhisattva, or Buddha, incarnation, or expression of this quality of 
enlightenment, in compassion, is known as the expression, the, the perfection of compassion. And the name translates to mean the one who listens to the sound of the universe. To actually listen to the sound of the universe is a profound expression of compassion. Because when we can allow ourselves to hear, to listen to what goes on in this world, if we can actually allow ourselves to hear it without holding ourselves apart from it or it in any way different or separate from ourselves, what we find is that naturally, ordinarily, we respond to it. It just simply comes out of the being, out of the life that is in this being, responding to the life around it. Just as when we hurt our foot, our hand quite naturally and rather effortlessly goes to rub it to soothe the pain. And it doesn't think that it's doing some grand deed or being particularly compassionate. It's not like it's the, you know, the Mother Teresa of hands that's engaged in this great selfless work. It's just the natural response that the hand rubs the foot. And truly we can speak of the hand as being separate from the foot. It's got a different appearance, a different function. And yet, if we look a little more deeply, where does the hand end and the foot begin? If we look or if we feel, where does it stop? Where is the end of one, beginning of the other? There is not such a thing. It's just a way of thinking about the hand and the foot to say that they are two different things. One might equally say that the hand is simply rubbing itself. That the foot is simply being cared for by itself. And it's rather clear to see when we look at our hand and our foot. But to look into this world with those same eyes is to transform our experience of being in the world and to transform, and to transform this very world by our being in it. Compassion is that quality of heart and mind which is diametrically and directly opposed to cruelty or to harming. It's that which wishes to relieve pain, to bring about the end of suffering in others and in ourselves. It's that rather natural movement that when faced with the suffering of this world wishes to relieve or to heal or to nurture and nourish the life that is touched by that suffering. And the very word itself, compassion, co meaning together with, and passion meaning feeling, or in fact suffering, from, from the Christian tradition, the passion of Christ, is actually meaning the suffering of Christ. To comp have compassion is to feel with, to be willing to be with the suffering of another not seeing as separate or distant from ourselves. And the degree to which we open to our own suffering, to that degree we can equally be open to the suffering in this world. That very openness reveals itself by a response. It's not a particular feeling. Compassion isn't some sort of warm, tender, sort of, <coughs> sen sort of sensitive inner condition that we might imagine it to be. Sometimes that can be part of the experience of compassion, but in itself that's not it. Compassion is actually a response to suffering that seeks to relieve it or to respond to it in some way. And the absence of the feeling doesn't mean the absence of compassion. The response can come in the form of a thought, a word or a deed. And some response we might not think it's much of a response, and yet the very fact that it's a response is important. The very movement coming out of our heart to wish another, may you be free of pain, even though maybe there's nothing we can do to reduce their pain at all. Just that wish has an effect. Just that wish is incredibly powerful and is a compassionate response. And the the Zen monk and saint, Ryokan, 
once expressed, I feel so beautifully this, this wish. He said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all of the suffering beings in this floating world. One just has the sense of just that wishing to gather all the beings to one's heart and enfold them. And yet, of course, the monk's robe barely stretches around his own shoulder. And yet that movement of the heart, so beautiful and so powerful. It's, it's so different than when we kind of want to fix it because we don't like it. When we're sort of in a place of either pity or aversion towards the pain that holds it as something separate, whether it's arising in another or in ourselves. The very sense that we hold it as something separate i.e. meaning it shouldn't be there or it's not really got to do with me. When it's inside we think it shouldn't be there and we hold it as separate. When it's outside and we're not closed, we're not open to it, we feel like what's this got to do with me? That's someone else's problem. And that, that very distance and that disconnection comes from an aversion, an unwillingness to open to the experience. When we open to the experience, when we actually allow ourselves to feel the pain of this world, the natural response of the heart is acting to release, to release it. And yet, in this action, we need to really be aware that that doesn't somehow mean that we make everybody else's need or suffering or difficulties more important than our own. It means that we understand that our own situation is not more important than that of anyone or anything else's. But equally, it is not less important. To stay open and connected <coughs> does not mean that we automatically respond or relate in a place or from a place of self-sacrificing. It's not a place of I should or you should do this or do that. If we find what we think is compassion is being driven by a sense of should or must or have to, we'll find that it leads to resentment. And that resentment will ultimately undermine the very intention and the inclination to act in the service and the relief of suffering in the world. Compassion asks us to open to the whole picture, to the truth of what is around us and within us. And in that opening, what we'll find is that when we have the capacity to respond to the world, we will do so in the way that we can. And when perhaps we have not that capacity, or when we've responded to the degree that we can and it's no longer possible to do so, what we'll notice is in fact that our own being at that moment starts to be in pain. And that that is the place where the compassion is asked for. When we seek, or we, not when we seek, when we reach our own limits of capacity of what we can give to this world or to another, in that very place where we come across our limit or our sense of this is too much, I can't give any more, I can't do anything else, I can't even listen to one more story of pain. And you know, in our world there's so many images, so many cries for help that we can be exposed to. At times we feel, I have to shut down to protect myself. I can't stay open to all of this. When we feel that place, it's not that we have to force ourselves beyond it, but that we actually need to allow the caring, the concern, to come back within to the pain that is there in our own heart at perhaps feeling overwhelmed by the enormity of suffering in this world. To recognize our own limited capacity, that we ourselves fear suffering, perhaps brought on by trying to give away too much, or feeling that we need what we have and we cannot let go of it in some way. This is to actually have a balance in the process, in the, in the expression of compassion that understands that compassion needs to move to that which is the most immediate need. We can't suddenly make compassion happen 
for things that are more distant from us than that which we are connected to. Sometimes it's ourselves, sometimes it's another. But trusting and understanding that both of these movements are expressions of compassion when we hold a larger picture of life. When we're not contracted and focused inward, inwardly in some exclusive way or on just those people or those things which we say are mine, my family, my friends, even my country. But do we understand that life has no such boundaries? There's no such limitations in life. So that if we can't act or give any more, we can have compassion for ourselves in that place rather than judging or being harsh towards ourselves. And as we open to our own limitations, our own humanness, and allow ourselves to touch that place in our being with kindness and with care, with compassion, that that place actually starts to heal, starts to open, and we'll again connect with the capacity to serve. I remember being in India when I was first travelling there and being so moved by the plight of the poor people with so little, with so difficult, challenging experiences that they would live in and, and feeling so much that I'd like to give them what I had. You know, I was a Westerner travelling there with my savings and thinking I can travel for six or maybe twelve months if I'm careful with my money. And it was really clear to me, you know, I could just actually find a good way to use this money that I had. And I could go back to the West and within a year I could have earned that money again and do all the things I wanted to. And it was really clear to me that yes, I could do that. But you know, I couldn't. Something in me couldn't let it go. And it was really painful to see that. It's really painful to see our limitations. And yet we need to be gentle with them. To give what one can, what one feels able to give. And, to bec- and just because we cannot fix everything, do not let that, let that stop us from doing what we can. Because this is so important. To not feel because we cannot do it all, that therefore we may not do anything. If we look in this world and we ask ourselves, what can I do? What can I do? The answer is there in front of us. Do what we can. Do what you can. Mother Teresa once said, We are not asked to do great things in this life, but to do small things with great love. To actually respond to what is there in front of us, within our heart, or within the heart or the life of another being. To respond to what is there in front of us is all we are ever asked to do. And it's all that we need to do. On that same trip to India, I had the opportunity to visit a, uh, an orphanage, in fact, one that was run by Mother Teresa's organization. And it's called, it was called Shishi Bhavan, which means children's home. And it was a place where children, babies in fact, mainly babies, who had been found on the street, abandoned by their parents who were too poor to look after them, or who were suffering from malnutrition, <laughs> from illness, and their parents were too poor to feed them or to treat them. And they'd been brought to the, to the orphanage, or their parents had died, and they had no other relatives who could care for them. And there was this orphanage for these children that I was allowed to visit. And in India, for various cultural reasons, as a man one isn't allowed to work with small children or spend much time with them. It's just a very strong cultural thing. And so it was only possible to visit for a short while. And I went there with a friend. We walked into this room, perhaps twice the size of this meditation hall. And in this room, there was a row upon row of little cots, perhaps five wide 
10, maybe 20 deep, I didn't try and count. But this room full of cots. And in each cot, two babies. You know, we walked into this room. And as we came in through the door, the babies near to us, and they're probably aged between 6 and 18 months, I couldn't really tell, started to move. The ones that could stand up would start to pull themselves up on the side of the cot and reach their arms out towards us. The ones that couldn't would be just sitting there, reaching out towards us. And, you know, we both looked at each other, realizing in that moment and seeing what was happening, this room full of babies. And the sisters, the, 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 the nuns who were caring for them, clearly so busy just feeding them and changing them and keeping them clean that they had no time to hold these little creatures. And these little babies wanted to be held. They just reached out to us. And what could we do? We just, each of us would just go to a cot, pick up the first baby. And just, in picking them up, just, you could feel, they went, like a, like a limpet going on. You know, just sort of, they knew what they wanted. And there was this, this holding. And we'd just hold them and be with them for a while. And then there was all these other babies, so sort of have to, peel them off and put them down even though they were clinging to us as we tried to and pick up another baby another child and just hold it for a while we spent probably one or two hours doing this just everywhere we walked in the room just picking up we didn't probably get through more than a third of the baby and then we had to leave and yet in some strange and mysterious way just having done what we could as well as it seemed like tearing the heart open it equally seemed to heal it there seemed to be a way in just having done what we can that this was all that life had asked of us that's all that we could give and that we left feeling incredibly just sensitized and open and raw and yet at the same time so deeply connected so deeply connected from that experience to understand in this life we are not here just for ourselves nor are we here exclusively for others. To see that in fact, to come into harmony with the way life is, is to live our life in the spirit of caring, in the spirit of concern and compassion for all that is in this world, in this universe. To see that the emptiness we might speak of, or the absence of self you might hear about or reflect on is not some annihilation of our existence but it's the absence or the the denial of our separateness of being removed of being apart from of being disconnected from the whole it's that which we are to see through it's that which we are to dissolve through our practice through our cultivation of wisdom and the dissolution of that illusion, that appearance of separation, reveals directly and immediately the natural relatedness of life that cares for itself. Life that cares for itself. Each and every part of it. So deeply. So profoundly. And that the wisdom and compassion of which our practice is a cultivation are but two, two sides of the same coin, two wings of the same bird. And that coin or that bird is the understanding of non-separateness, the understanding of interconnection, of interbeing. In that understanding, the inner work that we do in our practice, working exploring what it is possible for us to be present, to awaken our heart and our mind, and the outer responses to the world, the inner work and the outer work, as we could describe it, flows from the same place. 
it, it's it's the the wellspring. It, it flows from the wellspring of our life, from the wellspring of life itself. It's not different. It's not two different things. It's not that there's a conflict between seeking our own well-being and seeking the well-being of others. When we truly understand, we see that to seek our own well-being, our well-being is served by caring equally for others. And that in caring for others, we actually find the way to serve our own well-being. There is no boundary in this life. There is no place in which a division can be made. Inner work is outer work. And outer work is inner work. Because inner and outer is just a form of language. It's just an idea. There is no place where life stops and then begins again at some distance. To live in this understanding, to realize that there are no boundaries, no boundaries, is to live a life that is unbounded. To feel an absence or a lack of freedom. It must be born of a sense of limitation, a sense of boundary, a sense of somehow closing off to the totality. Releasing of that belief that illusion, opening to the totality of life and living in the spirit of that understanding. This is both the experience and the expression of the freedom of life. The freedom of life which we are invited to participate in, to awaken to, and to allow our life to be the expression of. Can we sit quietly for a minute or two, please? 